This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. First, I wanted to tell you about what NATO is trying to do in this important area, which is, to be honest, not part of the historical DNA of this military alliance but it is uh, an arena that that NATO is embracing increasingly, and it's part of my job to push it forward in every way I can. But I wanted to start tonight with Susan B. Anthony, because well over a century ago, Susan B. Anthony said, Oh, if I could but live another century and see the fruition of all the work for women. There is so much yet to be done. Well... I think we can all agree that there has been enormous progress over the past 100 years. In fact, we'll be celebrating one of the biggest milestones on the path toward equal rights for women in little more than three years. In 2020, it will be the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in the United States. Women won the right to vote here with the ratification of the 19th Amendment, but in the decades leading up to 1920, Susan B. Anthony and many others protested and marched, insisted and resisted. That's how change happens. It doesn't just fall out of the sky and into our laps. As we take stock of issues related to women, peace and security, I think we can safely say that much progress has been made. But for me, Susan B. Anthony's words ring equally true when she said, there is so much yet to be done, and there is. Again, I want to thank the University of San Diego not only for hosting this important conference that Andy talked about a moment ago, but also for all of your ongoing efforts on gender awareness, particularly in the security and defense sector, which, as we all know, can be especially challenging. Today, I hear, it has been a very fruitful day of informed, impassioned discussion, important insights, and very importantly, sharing best practices as well, best practices from around the world. I'm inspired by the wealth of knowledge and experience in this room, and again, I am deeply honored to have the opportunity to speak with you tonight. Just as the right to vote is a key milestone for women's rights in the United States, There have been several milestones in NATO's march toward greater gender equality. Here's a brief timeline. Believe it or not, as early as 1961, senior NATO female officers began organizing conferences to discuss career opportunities for women in the armed forces of the alliance. In 1976, the military committee officially recognized the Committee on Women in the NATO Forces, the CYINF it was known as. In 1998, the Office of Women in the NATO Forces was created. It is now called the Office of the Gender Advisor. Then, in May of 2009, and NATO loves abbreviations. You guys who have been in the military and gals will appreciate this. The CWNIF's mandate was expanded to support the integration of a gender perspective into NATO's military operations. This was specifically designed to support the implementation of UN Security Council Resolutions 1325 and 1820, along with related resolutions. The committee has since been renamed the NATO Committee on Gender Perspectives, and I, for one, am breathing a sigh of relief, because at least I don't have to say CWNIF anymore. 
At the 2014 summit in Wales, NATO leaders acknowledged the integration of gender perspectives throughout NATO's three essential core tasks, collective defense, crisis management, and cooperative security. These, it was acknowledged, will all contribute to a more modern, ready, and responsive alliance, and that was an important step forward for, as I said, this very, you know, historically, I would say, male-oriented alliance. NATO is also taking action within its own organization and structures to promote gender equality and the participation of women. Our Secretary General, my boss, Jens Stoltenberg, has been a strong advocate of gender perspectives and equality at NATO. In 2014, he appointed NATO's second special representative for women, peace, and security to serve as the high-level focal point on all aspects of NATO's uh, contributions to this field. Women now occupy several senior-level positions within NATO. Our first female four-star officer now leads NATO Joint Force Command, Naples. A female brigadier general serves as the commander and senior military representative of NATO headquarters in Sarajevo. A female lieutenant general is the commandant of the NATO Defense College in Rome. We have our first female NATO spokesperson, and she is a firecracker, I can tell you. And I'm the uh, first NATO Deputy Secretary General who happens to be a female. In addition, today, and I find this really gratifying as I look around the table at our defense ministerial meetings, seven ministers of defense in NATO countries are women. And it's really great. Interestingly, there are more female defense ministers now in the NATO family than foreign ministers. And I find that, that fascinating. I agree. Last year, the year I was appointed, marked the 40th anniversary of NATO's Committee on Gender Perspectives and the 55th anniversary of that very first meeting I mentioned to you of NATO female senior officers that was held in Copenhagen, Denmark. Let me share a few statistics from our 2016 annual report. As you'll hear, the picture is mixed, but there has been progress. The percentage of women employees NATO-wide increased to 26% in 2016. Is it good enough? No, we still have a ways to go. The percentage of women in the international staff remained at 39%. Women constitute 16% of NATO's international military staff. Just for those of you who don't know the NATO structure, it's divided between the civilian international staff and the international military staff. So 39% of the civilians and 16% of the military staff. The NATO International Military Staff Office of the Gender Advisor collected the following data in 2015. 85% of NATO members have all positions in their armed forces open to women, including combat uh, missions or combat positions. 11% of armed forces of NATO countries are made up of women on average. 6% of military personnel deployed in NATO operations in 2015 were women. 65% of NATO members have support structures in place for single, divorced, or widowed parents caring for children. 62% of NATO members have programs or policies to encourage work-life balance. 52% of NATO members have programs or measures in place to support parents when both are in the armed forces and one must deploy Sometimes two must deploy, and the burdens on the family are very strong in those cases. 
and fully 69% of NATO members have a military entity dealing with gender perspectives. So for NATO as an alliance, UN Security Council Resolution 1325, gender mainstreaming, and the integration of gender perspectives into all of our efforts and tasks, they are truly top priorities, but we still have work to do. There can be no lasting peace without inclusion. Let's be clear, inclusion and gender equality relate back to the fundamental values on which the alliance was built, democracy, individual liberty, human rights, and the rule of law. I would submit that we can only effectively defend those fundamental values if we actually live them ourselves. This is not, the only, not only the right thing to do, but also the smart thing to do. And uh, I know you heard from General Leaf this morning this very message, because we know that mixed teams are smarter and they perform better. Diverse teams are more innovative and creative. They produce better results. And today, we clearly need all the creativity our people have to offer. We can't afford to leave talent of any kind untapped. The NATO approach has been keep it simple, keep it practical, and start at home. Our ambition is to make gender awareness a basic skill inside the NATO headquarters and gender analysis a basic tool for every part of NATO, both civilian and military. The objective is to deepen our efforts toward gender equality and the implementation of UN Security Council Resolution 1325 and related resolutions throughout NATO's core tasks. This action plan and its partner nations, a total of 55 nations, follows really a two-track approach. First, it aims to reduce barriers for active and meaningful participation in women of women in our own structures in NATO and at national levels. And second, it aims to integrate gender perspectives in our daily work, that is to say, gender mainstreaming. I'll tell you, we still have a lot of work to do on this inside NATO headquarters, but it is my goal as Deputy Secretary General to press forward on this important agenda. Gender mainstreaming is not an end in itself. It's not a tick-the-box exercise. It's a strategy to deliver, again, better results on our mandate to effectively prevent conflict and secure lasting peace for all. The final goal, the end state of this approach, is to position gender literacy as a defining aspect of our professionalism. That means making gender analysis a basic tool in the toolbox of every security provider and decision maker at NATO, at the headquarters itself, or in the NATO system among the nations who are participating in our operations. One way to make these, th these kinds of basic tools available is through professional mentoring. In 2014, NATO's Special Representative for Women, Peace, and Security and the Human Resources Policy and Diversity Office launched the NATO Women's Professional Network and Mentoring Program. The goal of the program is to promote a common corporate culture and provide more training, development, and mentoring opportunities for women will help to increase the pool of qualified female candidates and break down any structural barriers that limit opportunities for women across the NATO organization. It's critical that our institutions recruit and promote on the basis of merit, not gender. A lot of you been there, done that. You know what I'm talking about. We have to focus on merit and not gender in professional selection processes. 
When we have moved from the first ever female commander and the first ever deputy secretary general to a woman as secretary general and many female commanders and soldiers, that will be a sign of true progress. The ability to apply gender as a perspective and as an analytical tool has proven to be vital to our missions and to our advising and training in these incredibly important operations we have going on in Afghanistan and in Kosovo. These involve training local security forces, and it is having women involved in those training teams that has made, I think, uh, a real difference in the effectiveness of that training. We have experienced firsthand how gender perspectives become a force enabler and a tool to enhance operational effectiveness and the ability to achieve a mission. Very, very important military goals. Put simply, when it comes to gender, doing the right thing and doing things right can, and often does, actually go hand in hand. The challenge now is to consistently apply, adapt, and adjust gender-related lessons learned to today's rapidly changing security environment. We have to demonstrate and practice the relevance of applying a gender lens to the complex security challenges of today. Here, it is important to analyze and understand the multiple roles women can play in resolving and preventing crises and conflicts. In other words, a gender perspective has to become part of a more multidimensional, comprehensive approach needed to not only fight the symptoms, but to address the root causes of today's security threats. This means making gender perspectives part of our core tasks and everyday business at NATO, which in turn will contribute to a more modern, ready, and responsive alliance. The key to this is improving gender literacy at all levels, from the top down and the bottom up. Research has shown there is a need for increased understanding of gender mainstreaming and the women, peace, and security agenda within the alliance, and this is something we need to work on. We need to clearly demonstrate the added value and increased efficiency that can result from the integration of gender perspectives. One of the best ways to do this is through tailored training for different audiences at different levels because gender mainstreaming is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. And I hope we can talk about this a bit during our discussion period because I'd like to learn from you about some of the discussions you had today and some of your thinking on this matter of how to ensure that we're not trying to you know, wrestle into a one-size-fits-all box what needs to be done on training in this area. To become more adaptive and responsive, NATO has to initiate and maintain active dialogue bolstered by research, shared knowledge, and best practices with our allies and partners, other international organizations, experts, civil society, and academia. That's why I'm very much welcoming this opportunity to meet and speak with all you here. It's a fantastic opportunity for me. This event, this con conference, is a major step toward more dialogue and more progress. And I truly hope we will continue and advance this progress in years to come. It all comes down to this. NATO and our partners are committed to removing barriers for women's participation in the prevention management and resolution of conflicts and in peace building and to reduce the risk of conflict-related and gender-based violence. We are very aware that greater gender balance builds capacity. It boosts the resilience of society along with the readiness of our forces and the effectiveness, the military effectiveness of our operations. 
So yes, NATO has made a great deal of progress. We're moving in the right direction. But as Susan B. Anthony would be the first to remind us, there is so much yet to be done. Thank you very much for this opportunity. As I said, I very much look forward to our discussion period. Thanks. Thank you so much, uh, Deputy Secretary General Gottmuller, for those remarks. As, as I said, we're gonna, I'm going to start with some questions. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about or ask a bit about um, some of the gender, gender awareness issues. Um, but I think I'd, you know, we're also going to take the opportunity uh, of having you here to speak a bit uh, about NATO more generally. But, but starting on uh, the women, peace, and security agenda, um, I think some in the audience are, are more familiar with that than others. Um, NATO is an organization founded on the concept of security. I wonder if you could just speak to what the Women, Peace, and Security agenda has taught us about security. What is it, what is it informed us about security? How has it helped us achieve security? Well, let me talk uh, a little bit. I'll give you a more specific example of what I was referring to in uh, my speech. We have a lot of training uh, operations going on now. For example, our Resolute Support mission in Afghanistan. And we have uh, really been working there to build local capacity. As Again, as my boss, Jan Stoltenberg, likes to say, the most effective way to ensure lasting peace and security and stability in, uh, in countries such as Afghanistan, Iraq, other places in the world, uh, the Western Balkans, Kosovo. We've been there for many years now. But building local capacity in both the armed forces and in the police forces. And in Afghanistan, we have found over the years that um, having a gender perspective involved in our training of uh, local armed forces, local police forces, has really uh, enhanced their effectiveness. It's enhanced their ability to work effectively in their communities. It's uh, enhanced uh, their ability to, uh, to really have a, a long-running uh, stable relationship in those communities in a way that, uh, that helps to ensure uh, that security is maintained. So we have uh, now a representative, uh, actually for the first time ever, uh, a NATO representative working in Afghanistan, and he's forming uh, points of contact in various, uh, in various regional centers in order to ensure, once again, that, uh, that the women are engaged in, uh, in villages, in, in small towns and communities, uh, and that there is some connective tissue between what the Afghan National Army is doing, what the local police forces are doing, and the concerns and interests uh, there for how security is maintained in the community. So I think that's a great example and a very pragmatic example of how we have specifically seen good results from engaging uh, these perspectives of women, peace, and security in the work we're doing to, to train local capacity. You mentioned uh, the timeline of accomplishments. You mentioned the, the work left to be done uh, on this agenda. Um, if you looked out maybe sort of th the next three to five years, what do you see as the biggest challenge? What, what are you sort of looking at as 
okay, we're going to focus on, on this and this and this uh, in regard to this agenda? It's a, it's a two-part challenge the way I think about it. First of all, um, it's up uh, to me, but not only to me, it's up to the entire NATO leadership to ensure that, um, that the NATO institution at headquarters uh, becomes more diverse. And that doesn't only involve women, um, but involves, you know, there are very various aspects of that. But it's interesting to me, having arrived from a, a U.S. Um, job working in the uh, Department of, uh, of State for many years and being very accustomed to see around uh, a table in the White House or wherever an interagency meeting is taking place, at least half of the people at that table are women. I mean, that's at least that's how it's been when I've been <laughs> working in Washington. I don't know, frankly, how it is today. But, but uh, in any event, uh, to uh, I think uh, to us here in the United States, it's a bit second nature now in many settings, not in all. But I think still for the for the NATO headquarters as an institution, it's not quite second nature. I want to get to the point where we're approaching having you know half of the people around the table being. Uh, women or being otherwise diverse. And so that's, that's a big goal over the next three to five years while I, I will be in this job. And then the second uh, challenge, and it's uh, a big challenge for NATO as a whole, we are expanding our efforts at capacity building to other, other areas. We have had uh, a visit uh, from, uh, from senior Libyan officials, for example, within uh, the last couple months asking us to help with training and capacity building in Libya. If you've been following the news on Libya, you know it's still a very unstable situation there. They haven't been able to form a government. There's disagreement between the government uh, in Tripoli, the government, uh, you know, eastern part of the country. Uh, General Hafta is playing a particular role. There's a lot of a lot of instability still, but we can see uh, that there is potential for engaging there. And one of our allies, Italy, is already very, very active in Libya with an historical perspective uh, there and relationships. But as we move into some of these new arenas, we have to ensure that these uh, perspectives uh, related to women, peace, and security are taken from settings where we're now accustomed to working them, such as Afghanistan. We have to take them to new and sometimes very complex and difficult places. So it will require constant attention to the matter and constant insistence that this is where we want to go. We're helped by having an action plan now um, in uh, NATO, which was very detailed to put together, very hard work, took a lot to get through the approval process, but now it's like a roadmap that we have available for bringing these perspectives to other areas of our work. I guess this is sort of a a follow-up to that, because you've talked about the work at at NATO headquarters, um, but it, it is an alliance organization, and so you have the national militaries, What's the approach to influencing militaries at, at the national level? What's, what's the NATO strategy to maybe create change in organizations that aren't actually your organization? It's an, it's an external organization. Well, we have, to, we have to look for a kind of symbiotic relationship here. As I went through the list in my speech, you could hear that many of the allied armed forces already have the institutions uh, built in. But it's making sure, I think, that we're 
we're bringing the issue up again and again, bringing it to the attention of our allies uh, around the table of the North Atlantic Council, which is our most senior policy uh, table. We did have a right around uh, International Women's Day on March 7th, we had uh, a North Atlantic Council meeting, a NAC meeting, which is the most senior and formal setting within NATO to discuss these issues. And so at that table sit all 28 of the NATO uh, the NATO ambassadors with their their military uh, representatives behind them, and you know, so people all engage in the debate and discussion. I don't get a lot of pushback in those kinds of settings, uh, but you know, frankly, people have a lot of priorities. A lot of the NATO allies are still building their armed forces. They were members of the Warsaw Pact, you know, 25 years ago, and now they're taking. Uh, you know, um, a new a new direction in forming an interoperable military force. So they've got a lot of a lot of priorities in what they do. So keeping the topic front and center uh, at the NAC and in other settings is one of the important uh, important goals we have to have. I think. Um, unfortunately, I think one of the times or, or some of the times we often hear. Uh, about gender issues in the military is when some sort of scandal uh, emerges. Um, Most recently, we've had the photo-sharing scandal within the Marines. Um, You know, even some of my uh, woman friends in the national security apparatus, you know, they're they're just sort of crestfallen by these sort of reoccurring scandals. Mm -hmm. So I, I wonder what's your perspective on those. Is it, you know, in some ways good news that these are being surfaced and being talked about? Is it a setback? Absolutely. How do we sort of prevent and, and get past these scandals? I do think we have to take a long-term perspective. The speechwriters came up with Susan B. Anthony, but <laughs> when I saw that they'd found Susie B., I was very, very happy uh, because she is one of my heroines. And the notion that this is a long-term struggle, I think, is really important to bear in mind. It is discouraging. I get discouraged when I realize uh, young women who I'm working with now are confronting some of the same struggles I had in the 1980s when my children were small. And, you know, it's still not easy to be a working parent. I say parent because both men and women have, have to juggle a lot. So these struggles keep, you know, they keep going around and around. And you hope after a while that the circle gets smaller and diminishes over time to zero. And I hope that's going to be the case with these scandals. But I remember living through the famous tailhook scandal. Right. I personally, I wasn't in the Navy. I didn't live through it myself. But that was a terrible scandal affecting, uh, you know, how uh, women were seen uh, in the military. And, uh, you know, it was a long struggle to come back from that. And so now to see the latest uh, struggles emerge, it's it's... It is disheartening, but I think we must uh, speak out about them and we must uh, do everything we can so that we can continue to diminish, I hope, over time, the problem down to zero. Um, I wanted to shift now um, to some some bigger questions about NATO. Um, When I was a student of international relations in the 90s and 2000s, I mean, no one talked that much about NATO. It was just it was sort of there, but it's, it's been more in the news Lately, as I said, new questions are, are being asked. So I wonder if you could just sort of start at the beginning. Sort of why NATO? Why should we care uh, about NATO? NATO was born out of a devastating world war and unrelenting nationalism 
that that drove us into that devastating World War II period. And it was born out of a re- realization after that war. And uh, again, you know, we saw the Iron Curtain come down after World War II. And there was an overarching realization that we had to see to it that we never face that kind of war again. And for Europe and the United States and Canada, but United States taking the lead with the Marshall Plan in the first case, and by the way, we're celebrating this year the anniversary of the Marshall Plan as well, it was really two directions. Economic development, ensuring that Europe got back on its feet after World War II and began to pull together that, that the countries in Europe, instead of, uh, of fighting over coal and steel, were instead pulling together in a common economic market. And that was a slow process, but culminated in the formation of the uh, European Union. But the other key area, and that's what got formed early on, was the NATO alliance to ensure that the security part, economy and security, that stability was sustained and maintained in those two areas. So it was out of the ashes of that devastating war, World War II, that NATO was born, and it has served the purpose ever since of ensuring peace and security, stability for the entire entire transatlantic community. I like to say, and so does Jens Stoltenberg, that uh, really NATO is the United States, the NATO allies are the United States' best security friends. They really help to ensure that war does not come to, the, to these shores. And uh, it's the same, of course, for our uh, Canadian allies. Uh, we are, you know, really, we are really tied up together in sustaining and maintaining security. It doesn't surprise me, Andy, when you say that you didn't hear much about it uh, in the late 90s and 2000s. That was a big in a way, a big problem for NATO because it was, it was cast into the wilderness in a way by the um, end of the Cold War, and we all really were happy and applauded the notion of a peace dividend, and it was really trying to figure out NATO during that period uh, what its main missions and priorities were going to be. Uh, then sadly, we had 9/11, and the first time and only time so far that Article Five has been invoked. This is the famous common security article that if one NATO country is attacked, then all countries come to its aid. That was after 9-11. And it was in, again, out of the ashes of the, of the Twin Towers was born this um, goal of NATO to fight terrorism and to fight extremism. And NATO has been with the United States every uh, every day since. It's been, people don't remember, but uh, AWACS planes were sent after 9-11 to help patrol the skies over North America and ensure that there weren't any more you know, planes coming our way. So, uh, and NATO has been with us in Afghanistan ever since. So it was a period, though, in the 1990s and early 2000s when NATO was kind of, hmm, what do we do next? Because the Cold War was won right then. Sadly, now we're back also to the collective security mission and uh, really doing everything we can to ensure that uh, a threat does not emerge from, uh, from the Russian Federation. You, you've teed up quite a few of my questions. That was a, a wonderful overview. But let's start there with, with Russia. Um, as you mentioned, NATO's 
you know, emerged out of World War II, emerged in some ways as a response to, to the Soviet bloc. Now Russia has reemerged. How, how does NATO th- think about the Russia challenge? How does it conceive of the Russia challenge? And what's the strategy uh, that's emerging toward Russia? When I get asked this question, I like to stress as really the first, the first point is that NATO did not choose where we are today with Russia. NATO would not be bringing four battle groups into the Baltic states and Poland except for Russia's aggressive behavior, seizure of Crimea in 2014, and now aggressive action in encouraging the separatists in the Donbass, in Luhansk and Donetsk, in the eastern part of Ukraine. So we did not choose this path, and we would just as soon you know, be in uh, an effective working partnership, not only with our partners across Central and Eastern Europe, but also with the Russian Federation. But we are where we are. And our response, and we are very clear about this, it is a response and it is defensive and proportionate and in line with international law. And I want to emphasize that for this audience as well. But having been faced with uh, increasingly effective, aggressive behavior, by the Russian Federation, NATO will be ready to uh, deter and defend, if necessary, against Russian aggression. But we don't, we don't want to be there. And so everything we're doing now is uh, to deter and defend, but also to engage in dialogue with the Russians, first of all, for the practical reason uh, that incidents at sea or in the air could spin out of control and lead to crisis and conflict. So we need to have a good, solid dialogue with Russia for practical security reasons. It's in our interest to do so. Um, so that's how things look with Russia at the moment. We, we do have dialogue with them. We just had a meeting on March 30th of the NATO-Russia Council. We're looking for ways to have effective military-to-military communications, and, and we'll continue to pursue those two tracks, deterrence and defense on the one hand and dialogue on the other. I wanted to follow up on on the issue of terrorism and violent extremism as well. President Trump has indicated he'd like NATO to focus more on those issues. Um, What what is the role of a collective defense organization in the fight against terrorism and violent extremism? President Trump has definitely been encouraging NATO to do more in the fight against terrorism. But as I already mentioned, uh, Article 5 was invoked for the first time, and NATO came to Afghanistan essentially at uh, the request of the United States to fight terrorism. So since 2011, NATO in a, in a very, very important way has been involved in the fight against terrorism in Afghanistan and over 1,000 soldiers of NATO countries have paid the ultimate price for that involvement. So we are involved, we have been involved now and, and Trump has given us a good push to look at what else we can do. And beyond, you know, Afghanistan, we're already doing a lot. Another example I'd like to give, I don't want to confuse migrants with terrorism. So please don't take this answer the wrong way. But uh, NATO is working together with the European Union in an operation we call Sea Guardian. And EU has an operation called Operation Sophia to try to help control the flow of migrants 
across the Mediterranean Sea and make sure that migrants are treated humanely and that they're properly registered and that they are properly then handled as uh, refugees and, and so forth. And part of that effort then helps us to know who's in that mix and to prevent also flow of foreign fighters uh, back into Europe. So, but again, please don't say, oh, you know, Sea Guardian is to control terrorism. Part of its goal is to ensure that foreign fighters, we know when they're coming, but it really has been very helpful, I think, in, in, the, uh, count, in the effort to uh, counter the, the terrible loss of life in the Mediterranean over the, the last couple of years. You've mentioned Afghanistan uh, a couple times, and, and um, you know, I wonder if you could speak to the thinking that's going on in NATO. I know that I think the technical term is out-of-area operations because they're, you know, they're outside of, of the NATO alliance countries. With the rise of Russia, with the situation we're in now, is, is out-of-area operations being rethought? Is there new thinking about the role of out-of-area operations within the NATO strategy? Well, there were two main objectives that came out of uh, the Warsaw Summit last summer, and one I've already talked about, deterrence and defense. But the other main one is so-called projecting stability. And projecting stability, um, it's sometimes, you know, people say, oh, deterrence and defense is all about the East and facing off with Russia, and projecting stability is all about the South and tackling the problems of instability and and rising extremism across northern Africa, into the Middle East, across to South Asia. No, both of these core objectives are what we call 360-degree objectives. So we are as concerned about fighting terrorism as it emanates from Central Asia. And this is an area where I've said to the Russians, look, you know, because they say to us sometimes, oh, you don't care about, you you don't care about the terrorists in our neighborhood. Yes, we do. We care about terrorism on a 360-degree basis. You know, wherever the the threats emanate from, we we need to help uh, and work together to try to tackle them. So, So that's very important. But projecting stability has a lot to do with working with countries. I've mentioned Libya a couple times, but other partners like Tunisia, for example, partners such as Jordan, in the, in the Middle East, uh, partners uh, further afield. And we do have some partners in Asia, such as, uh, such as uh, Australia, New Zealand, ROK, and Japan, but working with all these countries uh, in order to help, when they need it, help them build their national capacity. And so these are some new, really new areas that we would like to redouble our efforts, so to say. It, it means looking for new resources, frankly, and we have some of our allies who are pretty stingy in that regard. And they say, you know, you've, you've got enough going on already, um, so you don't need to be training so-and-so in such-and-such country. But again, I come back to that point I made at the outset that a very, very good way to bolster our security is to really help countries who are threatened by extremism to build up their own defense capacity, to build up their own defense institutions. A lot of these countries don't have, uh, you know, really coherent uh, civil control of the military, for example, and uh, we see that again and again. 
Uh, so there's a lot of work to be done in building capacity and training soldiers and training police forces and, and also in strengthening defense institutions so that they, they are responsible um, kind of support systems for stability and security in these countries. This is my last question, and then I'll, I'll let the audience have, have some of theirs. Um, you did mention the issue of resources. Um, another one of the issues that has, has been in the news here is the 2% goal. Mm-hmm. Um, NATO has set the goal that each country in the alliance will spend 2% of its GDP on defense. And please correct me if, if that's not right. But, I mean, according to the numbers, NATO itself has released five of 28 of the countries um, are meeting that goal. Um, could you talk a bit about the 2% goal, what it means, and, and what it means that countries are still uh, a little bit below that goal and, and moving toward that goal? The 2% goal um, was first articulated in uh, Wales in 2014. And by the way, it goes along with a uh, 20% goal uh, of defense budget to be spent on acquiring new capacity um, because uh, a lot of countries, again, they need, to, they need to build up their military capabilities, and that's very, very important. So a lot of countries uh, are you know, spending already 20% of their defense budgets on building up new capability, building up new technology. I, I spoke a moment ago, you know, a lot of the countries, the newer members of NATO are still dependent on Warsaw Pact-era equipment. So to acquire new capabilities that will allow them to be interoperable with other NATO forces is a very pragmatic goal, but it costs money. And so we um, saw, frankly, well, here's the first point I'll make. The first point is 2% of GDP historically is not an unusual uh, goal for NATO. In 2000, across the NATO alliance, the vast majority of the allies were spending 2% of their GDP on defense. So what happened, however... And I understand it, but uh, first of all, there was that famous, you know, peace dividend kind of mindset that got started. People, I think, in in, uh, ministries of finance as well as in governments across the alliance started thinking, well, maybe we don't need to spend so much on defense anymore. And the second point is also a very important one, that in 2008, we had a major financial crisis, and a lot of countries had to begin to make some really, really difficult choices between spending on social welfare and spending on defense. Again, we understand this. So this goal was laid out in uh, in 2014 to begin to address the major challenges that came our way in 2014. The first was, uh, uh, we've already talked about uh, Russia seizing territory in, in Ukraine and becoming again a major security concern. But the second was the rise of ISIL and the seizure of Mosul in 2014. That's why we consider 2014 such a watershed year. And it was in 2014 at Wales where the allies came together and said, okay, we recognize we have to begin to spend more on defense. So 2014 was the year that the drop in defense budgets stopped and it began to rise a bit. And uh, by 2000. 15, 2016, the level started coming up. So it was 3,000, 3, I'm sorry, 3.8% increase uh, in, in 2016. So this is good. It's the right direction. It's the trend we want to see. But another point I want to make 
is that it's not all about the 2%. It's about also acquiring new capabilities, as I said, and also contributions that allies make to important operations. Germany, for example. Germany, there's been debate, no question about it, inside Germany about this famous 2% pledge. And we like to point out that NATO benefits so much from decisions that Germany has made to make a big contribution to NATO operations. They have a 1,000 people from their armed forces in Afghanistan today. That's a big, big contribution. So all of that has to be factored in as to how we think about defense burden sharing. Um, So first question from uh, the audience, and I, I, I like this question. Could you tell us a story from your own experience when it was especially important to have a women's perspective at the table? <laughs> that is a great question. Could Thank be you. NATO or maybe earlier. Oh, in, I want to talk career. about earlier because um, <laughs> there were some very uh, fun moments during the negotiation of the New START Treaty. Um, and the Russians were not accustomed to having a woman on um, my side of the table. Um, And they were very uncomfortable. But I found that that discomfort um, threw them off balance a bit. And it was useful, very useful in the end in the negotiating process. Um, It's very amusing. I recollect that um, they they thought they could game me to begin with because they didn't think I knew much about nuclear weapons. But I know a lot about (laughs) nuclear weapons. So as as it turns out, I knew more than a lot of the people on their side of the table. So um, after a while, well, as I said, I knocked them off balance. Uh, But then we started to make progress in the negotiations. And that's the other thing that I will say, is I think women do make good negotiators. You know, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect in in anything they do. But but, um, I do think women make good negotiators because when gamesmanship starts... We don't tend to get up and stomp away. We're ready to say, okay, okay, get over it. Let's get on with it. And frankly, I think that that, too, was something that knocked the Russians off balance a little bit, that I wasn't going to, if they were insulting or, you know, did something mischievous or whatever, I'd just make a joke of it and say, let's get on with it. And that helped. So I do think that's my experience um, uh, so I'll just mention that uh, sometimes I think um, a kind of female approach to things uh, works. Um, this is a, sort of a version of a question I asked earlier, but I think it's actually framed a little better than how I asked it. Um, how has the integration of gender of women contributed to the evolution of NATO security doctrines? Wow. Uh, well, I will... Really, you know, it, doctrinal formation is a big question. And I will say that I think we're not there yet in terms of interweaving concerns and, um, and policy in this area across the board in, uh, in NATO doctrinal approaches. I will say, however, and I mentioned our action plan earlier, which is a roadmap to help that happen. And the way it's happening is to build up training programs. And it's through the training programs that these considerations are entering into operational 
thinking, and then the operational thinking over time gets reflected in doctrinal evolution. So it's a big question, and uh, it's an important one. And in some ways, I need to think more about it before giving a considered answer. But I would say uh, we're kind of starting here from the ground up, and it's coming into NATO uh, operational thinking in the first instance through training and exercises, and then, and only then, I think over time, will it be broadly reflected in how we, how we write down our doctrine. Um, we have two questions from our research team, and I think you have a bit of a mind meld. They're sort of related. Um, our, our research team from Queen's University and from University of California, Irvine. So I'm going to ask these together a bit. Um, they note that the, their research on, on NATO indicates that understanding of gender mainstreaming at headquarters is mixed. Um, so how do you envision encouraging NATO leadership uh, to consider a gender perspective uh, on decision-making, and then the related question, how do we engage the assistant secretary generals um, given their key role mm-hmm. um, in day-to-day decision-making? So, you know, that, yeah. that leadership, we heard a lot today about the importance of leadership for these issues. It is an uneven picture with regard to the NATO uh, assistant secretary general. So it's a simple system at NATO. It's pretty flat. There's one secretary general, Jens Stoltenberg. There's me as the deputy secretary general. And then there are eight Assist, I think it's eight, is that right, Nadia? Eight assistant secretary generals. I'm still learning. I've only been there since the fall, so, um, but I think that's right. Uh, in any event, the assistant secretary generals are uh, the ones who actually have uh, the most important line responsibilities for making the different programs run throughout the headquarters. Some of them are great enthusiasts for these issues. <laughs> And I'm finding in particular, and it's very important, it reflects back on the last question about how to move this into the the world of NATO doctrine, the director of operations, the assistant secretary general who's the director of operations, is sold on these issues because he sees, again, the benefit to how our uh, operations out in the field are becoming more effective through incorporating gender perspectives. So... What I'm hoping for is beneficial infection of the other ASGs. And I'm already seeing it happen because we had a, I mentioned our meeting on the 7th of March where we had uh, assistant secretary generals, you know, um, some of them a little resistant to talking to the NAC because they didn't quite know what they wanted to say. Others pushing, wanting to brief, very enthusiastic. And, you know, when... (laughs) I think the ASGs who didn't speak saw what a good reception they got. So I don't think about it as naming and shaming. I think about it as inviting them, letting them have the chance to show what they've got, and then um, inspiring, I hope, the rest of them to become equally interested. This is a question that came up uh, in the conversations today as well. Um, How can NATO avoid the tokenism of simply adding women to the organization and actually integrate feminist cultural values into the operational culture? So we heard the critique of sort of the add women and stir approach as opposed to, you know, really sort of drawing on the the resources of of women. That's very good. Um, What I am finding about NATO is that there's very little there's very little fat in the organization, actually. Uh, so when anybody is hired, they are being hired because there's substantive work to do. 
And so, frankly, I think a lot, of, a lot of what I'm finding, again, in the short six months I've been, is that women are coming in, surprise, surprise, as young interns at the very, very entry level, but they're, they're proving themselves on the field of battle. They're proving themselves on the field of bureaucratic battle in the organization. They're getting more and more responsibility thrown at them. Lo and behold, oh, we need to hire her. We can't let her go. Yes, she's only an intern, but we've got to get her in. Oftentimes they come in on short-term contracts. There's danger in this uh, because they can be exploited, both young men and young women. I I recognize that, but it has proven to be a way to get uh, young blood, new blood into the institution. And some of those now are starting to rise to middle management ranks over time. So... um, I hope that the very fact that NATO is not a resource-rich organization, we have to make use of everyone who comes through the door and gets a job handed to them um, to ensure that we don't just have that window-dressing effect. I don't see it at NATO. Maybe you two would like to comment, having been there and done some work, but I don't see it myself just yet. We're at a university, so I love I love this question, and this will be my last question from from the audience, but for students and young professionals interested in a career path similar to your own, do you have any advice? The the classic uh, career path question. Um, I have two pieces of advice, um, and they work both of them in my case. First of all, um, don't be afraid to start small and take some risks, take some judicious good risks. Uh, and many of you already have gone the path of internships or whatever. That's that's what I did. I had I always like to say back in 19. I hate to say it, but it was back in 1978. I had two job offers. One was for a full time, um, you know, government job with very good benefits for those days. Uh, many of you in the audience will chuckle, but the annual salary it was a GS seven. It was $7,000, but it seemed like a lot of money to me at the time. But, you know, that was a full-time job, and that was the safe path to take. And then I got a job offer from, uh, from Rand Corporation, from their senior Soviet military analyst in Washington, in their Washington office, to work with him as a part-time research assistant on a book he was writing on the strategic arms limitation talks the early prototype strategic arms reduction process that was developed in the early 1970s. So I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I finally decided the risk was worth taking, and um, it paid off because that senior fellow at RAND turned out to be a great mentor, um, really pushed me forward. It allowed me to get my graduate degree, and then I ended up with a full-time job at RAND that I, I stayed at RAND for 12 years. So it was a risk worth taking. So uh, that's one piece of advice. Don't be afraid to start small and take a judicious risk. But the other thing I like to say to young people is never apologize. And this is particularly a problem for women. Um, and I'll just tell, this is my last story for the night, oh, I please. promise. But um, I had a graduate school professor uh, who called on me one night in a seminar. And before I gave my answer, I said, well, I don't know if I have the right answer or not, but, and he said, stop right there. He said, never apologize. Just say what you've got to say. Whether it's a right answer or a wrong answer or whatever, never apologize. And frankly, that 
proved to be the best piece of advice I ever got. So I'll leave it at that. Okay. Um, I want to close on a, on a slightly bigger question. I, I, um, I talked about the, the moment we're in in regard to these international institutions that all of us have, have lived with over the last 40, 50 years. Um, you know, what would you say uh, to people like myself who are a little bit concerned about the threats our liberal international order is under? You know, how do we, how do we make the case for these institutions that um, many of us think are so important? It is, I think, first of all, very important to recollect the history. As I talked about NATO coming from the ashes of World War II, it was the same for the United Nations, uh, and it was the same for the European Union as three of the great institutions of the, of the post-World War II era. Um, and to try to, to impress uh, to the degree we can on on uh, new generations, the devastation of that period and the fact that we, we must not, we must do everything we can not to descend to that, to that situation again. But the second thing, I think, is to embrace and acknowledge the fact that these institutions need reform. A lot of the frustration with the UN system, for example, has to do with the corruption, with duplication, with inefficiency, and Guterres himself, I heard him at the Munich Security Conference, he recognizes this. He, you know, we got, and, and Ban Ki-moon before him, but structurally it's been very difficult to reform the United Nations. Nevertheless, we must acknowledge and grapple with the necessity of reform in the big inst- international institutions. That goes for NATO as well, and we're grappling every day with how to make NATO the modern, effective, efficient, and inclusive institution it needs to be. So, um, so that would be what I, I would say. It ain't easy because, you know, a lot of people just wave their arms and say, get rid of them. But that's not the answer. That's not going to help us with the challenges we have to confront today. Please join me in thanking Deputy Secretary General. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.